Sunday in the new year, so as I thought about a topic to cover, I thought there might not be anything more appropriate than to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by reminding ourselves of the majesty and the glory of the gospel, as we begin what is most likely to be a very tumultuous year, we have elections, we have a lot of things that are going to happen, and um, I don't think we're going to see anything that is going to improve what's going on in the world around us as our culture continues to disintegrate. I thought it might be helpful to remind ourselves of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us through the gospel. So that's what I'm going to focus on today. And for some, you may hear truths you have never heard. For others, this may be a reminder of all that you already know. But either way, we can never hear the gospel too much. Our wonder and love for our Savior Jesus Christ should be renewed, and hopefully the flames of your passion for him and your satisfaction in him will be um, increased today. <clears throat> As I thought about this, it's in the context of a church that is characterized by diminishing focus on the doctrines of the faith. We have a very shallow view, and I'm talking about the church in general. We have a very shallow view of God and a tendency to embrace false teachings or at least an inadequate or understanding of the truths of God. We see this in almost every doctrine of the faith. The church has lost its commitment to the inherency and sufficiency of the scripture. We cannot stand against the winds of cultural decay and instead, we give way and compromise in the hope that we might somehow please the culture. The church has become a social organization focused on the needs and wants of men instead of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But today, I want to address the most or one of the most foundational doctrines, and as I mentioned, that is the gospel. We need to understand in an effort to accommodate the culture, we have abandoned the exclusivity of the gospel. We want to allow access to everybody because we don't want to be exclusive. We don't want to offend the culture. We don't want to offend those around us. Clark Pinnock in his book, A Wideness in God's Mercy, says this. When we approach a man of faith other than our own, it will be in a spirit of expectancy to find how God has been speaking to him and what new understanding of the grace and love of God we ourselves may discover in this encounter. Our first task in approaching other people, another culture, another religion, is to take off our shoes for the place we approach is holy. Now, I don't know about you, but a statement like that causes me to shudder. That when I approach a person of another religion who is bowing down before an idol, I should take off my shoes because I'm on holy ground. Social media has caused us to, to limit our thinking. We want to uh, condense everything into a few lines that we can put in our Twitter or our Facebook. Little pithy lines like, Jesus saves. Now that is true. Jesus saves, but that is an inadequate understanding 
of the glory of the gospel. Uh, most people in the church, unfortunately, cannot explain to you in detail all the elements of the gospel, and most have a very man-centered view of the gospel. It's all about us. There's also an anti-intellectual culture that doesn't want to dig into these doctrines. We don't want to spend our time exploring the depths of the gospel. It is true that the gospel can be understood by a child, but it is also true that theologians can spend their whole lives delving the depths of the glory of the gospel and still not explore it all. We don't want to be like those warned in Hebrews to be those who drink milk instead of solid food. And this leads us, unfortunately, to an appreciated value of the infinite grace and value of the gospel. MacArthur, in a sermon he gave in 1981, said this, There is no way to comprehend the riches that God has provided for those who love his son. No way. They are infinite. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The Bible says, I have not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And beloved, this is the good news. MacArthur made an allusion to Matthew 13, verse 46, where Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Did you catch that? Did you see it? A true understanding of the gospel will cause you to joyfully give up all that you have, sell it all for the kingdom of God, for his salvation, and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see later the incomparable riches of those who wait for God's Son and who repent and bow their knee to his obedient submission. But I want to take a moment and I want to focus for a minute on the purpose of your salvation. Why did God save you? Why did God save me? We need to understand that we are not saved for our own benefit. Although, as we will see, we will benefit greatly from our salvation, ultimately, God saved all of us for his glory. You are saved for the glory of God because it's an affront to his holy nature that someone should live in rebellion against him. His glory is the issue in the gospel. This is the greatest purpose of God, his glory. In Philippians 2, it says that every knee will bow and confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of the Father. Salvation is for his glory. The gospel is for his glory. The gospel is not all about me. It is all about God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15 says, These things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading more and more, people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. We see that in our redemption, 
God is most glorified. The reason you are saved is so that you will give glory to God for all eternity. God is glorified when you believe in his gospel. God is glorified when you love his son. God is glorified when you acknowledge your sin and your dependence on him. God is glorified when you turn your entire life over to him and worship him and him alone. God is glorified when we live in accordance with his purposes and his words. God is glorified when our greatest satisfaction is in him and him alone. We live and exist for the glory of God. So let's take some time now and let's explore the depths of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want to do that by looking at three points. I want to look at the gospel in eternity past. I want to look at the gospel as it's presently working its way out. And then I want to look at the gospel and its future expectations. So let's start with the promise of the gospel in eternity past. The gospel did not originate 2,000 years ago with the coming of Jesus Christ in the world. The gospel originated in eternity past with God's eternal decree. So let's take a moment to explore that. Scripture teaches that God chose to save a people for his own sake, for the bride of Christ, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. That phrase means before creation. Before there was anything, God chose you. In 2 Timothy 1, I'll pick it up in verse 9, it says this, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's the same idea from eternity past. Jesus echoed those words when he said this in Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What we see here is God, before he even made creation, chose you. He chose me. And he created, as Jesus said in Matthew that we will one day inherit a kingdom that was prepared for us from eternity past. As part of God's decree, Scripture tells us that there was a promise made in eternity past. Look with me at Titus 1. 
Turn there in your Bibles and you'll see this in verse 1. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God elects, he means those chosen, and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised from all eternity. Now, here's a question you need to ask yourselves. It says, God made a promise from all eternity, an eternity past. Well, the question is, to whom was the promise made? It wasn't made to you because there's no creation yet. It's not made to the angels. What we're looking at here is an intra-Trinitarian promise. This is a promise God made to the Son to present him a bride for his glory, and that bride includes the church. We see this in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We are a bride who will be presented to the Son. And that covenant, that promise was made in eternity past. God, in eternity past, promised that, and the Son covenanted with the Father to redeem that bride on the cross with his own blood. In this plan, we see that God is the source, the initiator, the implementer, and the guarantee of our salvation. For in this, his people, the promised ones, by the Father, before time began, we are the ones who God promised he, to the Son. And in, G, in John 17, <clears throat> sorry, verse 24, Jesus Praying to the Father says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Did you see that in this promise? The Father gives the Son a bride and Jesus says, I desire that they also whom you have given me. What an incredible truth. Not only that, but believers' names were recorded in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Your name, if you are a believer this morning, your name was recorded in the book of life before the creation of the world. In Revelation 17, verse 8, it says this, And the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder what they see when they, um, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. But I want you to notice it says, 
that those whose names had not been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer, your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And this was all in accordance with God's purpose as reflected in that promise. In Ephesians 1, it says this, In him we also have been made an inheritance according, I'm sorry, having been predestined according to his purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Later in verse 13 of chapter 3, verse, sorry, verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, we see that God predestined us before the ages to our glory. So before the foundation of the world, God chose to put his love on you. Now we can see that Jesus' most uh, strong desire was to fulfill the will of the Father. We read in John 6 where Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, what? To do my, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all whom he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you see the, the continuity in this? God made a covenant within the Trinity before the foundation of the world. That is his eternal purpose. It's his eternal decree. And he has been working that out through the millennia, starting with creation and through his son Jesus Christ who said, all whom the Father gives me, I will protect, they will come to me, I will lose none of them. Right? You are a gift from the Father to the Son. And it should be obvious from all of this that you really ultimately have nothing to do with your own salvation. There was nothing external to influence God on your behalf before the foundation of the world. Thus, every decision which is part of God's decree was an uninfluenced, free decision in accordance with his good pleasure and what pleases him ultimately for his glory. Now we're going to see that we are going to benefit greatly from that decision. But I think this is a foundational thing we all need to understand. And we all need to have influence how we live our daily lives. We understand that we were not saved for my sake, I was saved for the glory of God. And by the way, that should be your greatest joy. It should be your greatest desire. And it should be a foundational thing, a rock upon which you can stand 
knowing that he will never let you go because you were given to the Son, I mean, to the Son by the Father. So let's talk about the working out of the gospel in the present age. We understand that the gospel began in eternity past, but now, today, God is working out that eternal decree, that eternal promise in the lives of each one of you. Many believers think that God forgives their sin and they get saved and they're going to heaven and that's it. That's pretty much the gospel. Well, that's true. He does that, but that's not all he does. Because we have such a low view of the gospel, we have a low and deficient understanding of what it means to what it means when you are all placed in Christ, which is true of every believer. So I want to talk about some of the things that are true in the outworking of the gospel in the lives of believers. First of all, you need to understand that God is working out his eternal purposes when he draws you to himself. He draws you to himself. I would like to think that I became a Christian because I was really smart. And I understood that and I figured it out and I understood everything that was going on and I gave my life to Jesus because I deserved it. But that's not the case. No one will seek God on their own. No one. Romans 10, starting in, I'm sorry, Romans 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. None. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, In whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. No one seeks God. Satan has blinded their eyes. And in Romans 8, verse 6, it says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because... The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Did you catch that? None of you came to faith on your own. When God determines he's going to call you, he initiates salvation when he calls us out of the darkness. He has done that for all of you, if you are a believer. We saw in earlier in John 6, 37, that all that the Father gives me will come. They will come. In John 6, 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We see God draws us and in 1 Peter 2.9, we see to him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he calls us a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In Colossians 1.13, it says he rescued us from the authority of darkness. You can claim nothing for your salvation. He called you. He drew you. How does he do that? What does that look like when he does that? Well, first of all, you need to understand he does that when he turns a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. 
In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, talking about the new covenant, he says more this. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. When God draws you to the Son, he takes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not according, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So who turns the heart of stone to a heart of flesh? The Holy Spirit does that when he regenerates you, when God calls you to himself. He even gives you the faith that you need to believe. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. No one gets to boast before God about how good they were, how righteous they were, how they deserve to be in the kingdom, because none of us deserve to be in the kingdom, right? Nobody does. How many seek after God? None. No one seeks after God. Secondly, we need to understand that when God does that, your sins are forgiven. Right? Your sins are forgiven. You know that. God promised Israel forgiveness for their sins through the new covenant. And the superiority of the new covenant is the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. We are saved through the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 34, it says, talking about the new covenant, that they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So God promises this new covenant to Israel, and he applies it, to the church through the blood of Jesus Christ. It, we, every time we do the Lord's table, we remind ourselves of this glorious truth. In Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus, while he is instituting the, Lord's, the sacrament of the Lord's table, or the ordinance, it says, in the same way he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. Your sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So here we see that the second aspect of the working out of the gospel is the forgiveness of your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we say through the blood of Jesus Christ, what do we mean? We don't mean the literal blood, the fluid. We mean his sacrifice on the cross when every single sin you committed, past, present, and future, was laid on him, and God poured out his eternal wrath, his infinite wrath on his son for your sin and for my sin. And when that happened, 
Your sins were not only forgiven, but you were set free from your slavery to sin. Romans 6, verse 17. Having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 22. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You were slaves of slates. You were slaves of Satan. But now you are slaves of God. You were slaves of sin. Now you are slaves of righteousness. <clears throat> what an awesome thing to be set free from that bondage. But that's not all. When God chose you and called you to himself, something else changed. And that was your relationship with God changed from one of enmity to one of becoming, as Peter said, a chosen family, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What a glorious statement. We were enemies of God destined for eternal wrath. By the way, that word wrath is a strong word. It literally means a feeling of intense anger that does not subside, often on an epic scale. We cannot imagine the horror of the wrath of God. But for all who don't put their faith in Christ Jesus and repent, as it says here in Romans 1.8, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In John 3.36, it says, but the wrath of God abides in him, speaking about the unbeliever. The wrath of God abides in him. He's just waiting for it. You know, I thought about at this time reading you in Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but I figured you didn't want to be here for two hours, so I'm not going to do that. But if you've never heard that or read that, you ought to read it. Talks about God's infinite wrath that is going to be poured out on everybody whose sins are not covered by the blood of Christ. And when God calls us, we are no longer his enemies, but we're reconciled. You and God are now at peace. Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, verse 22, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You were God's enemy, you were destined for wrath, but now you are presented holy and blameless before Yahweh, before the Father. And by the way, this relationship is un breakable. Let me just remind you of Romans 8 verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This relationship that has now been created is unbreakable. And Paul gives us this list of things that can't break it, and, and he's trying to come up with anything he can think of to make sure that you understand nothing will separate you from the love of God. 
The next thing we need to understand about the gospel that we don't often think about is the fact that in the gospel you are a new creation. The gospel doesn't just promise forgiveness and a new relationship with God. It promises to make you a new creation. This is a literal thing. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The word new here um, in the original language means new in quality, not just sequence. The old self was crucified. It's been put away. And you are literally a new person. Your character is different. You're not the same you were. If you are a believer, you are a new creation. It's not just figurative. It's not talking about, it's talking about a literal change. You were sinners by nature. That was your character. Now you are made a new creature with new desires, new affections, eyes that see and ears that hear. When God makes us a new creation, he makes us fit for a relationship with him, whereas before you were unfit for that, you are only fit for eternal destruction. Now, as a new creation, you are fit for the very presence of God. Ephesians 4, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Wow. That's the new creature. Another aspect of the new self can be seen in Galatians 2.20 where it says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Being crucified with Christ implies a radical transformation within the believer. The I who has died uh, to the law no longer lives. Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit, dwells within, sanctifying our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to approach the throne of God in prayer, to come before the Father who hears our prayers. And you'd think that's enough, but it's not. As a new creature, we understand that we share in the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Amen, amen. So that by them you may become partakers of of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You were created in the image of God, but sin marred that image, separated us from God, but now we share in the divine nature of God. And day by day, you are made into that very image more and more every day. We have this great promise in Romans 8.29. It says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. 
See, God is about right now, because he called you to himself, he is conforming you to the image of his son. In 1 John 3, 2, we read this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. But then John says this, We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There will become a moment when Christ is manifested even in your death or in the rapture where you will see him face to face and you will become like him in perfection. What an awesome thought. But there's more. There's more about the gospel we need to understand, and that is, fifthly, that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, my guess is all of you knew that, right? Anybody in here not know that? But because of the confusion generated by the charismatic movement, many Christians simply ignore this amazing truth. But that also is a sinful misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer. We should not ignore the Holy Spirit in our lives. Your body has literally, literally become the temple for the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, For do you not know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? This is an incredible thought. God himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, now indwells the new creature. And Romans 8, verse 9, tells us that if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit, and if you're not a believer, you don't have the Spirit. And by the way, the Spirit is, in a sense, God's engagement ring for the bride says this in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession. That's us. That's his church. That's the bride. To the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to the bride. It's his promise that he will do everything he has said and he will ultimately bring his possession into his very presence. But the Holy Spirit also enables to live a life that reflects that new nature. Galatians 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And in Galatians 5, 22, we see the fruits of the Spirit. Right? So the Spirit dwells in you. He's the promise. And the Spirit enables you to live like the new creature God intends you to be. But there's even more. And I don't have time to go all over these, so I'm going to just go over these sort of in a quick shotgun style. But they're all true. These are all the outworkings of the gospel today in the lives of believers. First of all, you have real hope. 
you have real hope. And the hope is not in this world, right? If your hope is in this world, you're going to be really disappointed. And as Christians, you are now foreigners in this world. Jesus says multiple times you are in the world, but you're not of the world. Do you see the distinction? You're in it. You're living in, right now, we're in San Antonio, Texas, last I checked, which is part of the world, but you're not of this world. This is not your home. This is not your hope. You ought to feel like a stranger and an alien around here because you are. You know, when we lived in Japan, my wife and I lived in Japan for three years, and we had, we had acquaintances, and we had some Japanese people we know, and... But you know what? None of them were really our friends, and we knew we were not at home. It felt like that. That's how it should be for you. This is not your home. This is not where all the things that we have are all going to get burned up. And Christians have a new commitment. Christians are willing to take up their cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. Christians are willing, if necessary, to die for the gospel. And Christians are one body with Christ. You know, Chance in Ephesians has been emphasizing the unity of the church because it's true. We are one body in Christ if you are a believer. And as I mentioned, you are the bride of Christ. You know, when I think about this, and, and I need to go a little bit faster, but as I think about this, you know, I remembered Ray and I waited five and a half years to get married, and, and man, when I saw her walking down that aisle, wow. But one day, we will experience that with Jesus. We will be the bride that Jesus from eternity past has sought to create. And Christians live for the glory of God. So in my remaining time, I want to talk about the third aspect of the gospel, and that is the reward of a gospel in eternity future. See, we looked at, at the promise of the gospel in eternity past and the working of the gospel today, but the gospel's effects extend into eternity future. While the impact of the gospel in our lives today is more than we deserve, the future effect of the gospel is incomprehensibly glorious. So I'm going to talk to you about some things that frankly, in some ways, are incomprehensible. God has promised a glorious future for all those whom he has called. It's hard to imagine those glories, right? I try to do that. But it doesn't mitigate the fact that we will spend eternity in the very presence of God. The Bible promises eternal life to all who believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. You all know that, right? That's not news. But we need to understand, the Bible teaches us all men will live forever. Right? When we talk about eternity, it's not just endless days. All men will have endless days. Right? The Bible teaches us that unbelievers, those who hate God, will live forever. 
The question is, what is the eternal destiny of those who believe and those who do not? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in Matthew 25. For when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now listen to this in verse 46. And those, and those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Right? We will go into eternal life, but the, the unrighteous will live forever, just like us, but they're going to live in eternal punishment. Jesus said in John 14, verse 2, that I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus, in his ascension, is in heaven preparing a place for you. And in fact, we read earlier that God has been doing that since the foundation of the world. You may live in a house that you had built for you and it took a year or whatever it took. God has been working on all eternity to a place for you. For you. God will complete the sanctification in us and we will finally be perfected. Philippians 1.6 says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And again, that verse we read in Romans chapter 8, we are predestined to become perfectly conformed to the image of his son. You will be like Jesus, you will be perfect. You won't be Jesus. He's God. We still won't be. But we will be like him in perfection. But th there's more to it than that. Believers have eternal life, but that just doesn't mean endless days. Jesus defined eternal life for us. In John 17, he says this, and this is eternal life. Well, let's pay attention. Christ is going to define it. That they may know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. There it is. Eternal life for a Christian <clears throat> means a relationship with the Trinity. You're already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You will be for eternity. But you're going to have a relationship, an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with the Trinity. Let's take a closer look at this for a few moments. Frankly, this is, in a way, to me, incomprehensible. We sinful men and women will experience intimate fellowship with the Trinity. First of all, and, and take note of this, God will love us with the same love he loves the Son. John 17 uh, verse 23, in, in them, I'm, oh, let me, sorry, I in them and you and me, he's talking to the Father, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? The Father loves us in the same way or in a similar way that he loves the Son. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I know me pretty well, and if I was the father, I wouldn't love me like I love the son. Why would he do that? Why would he love me like that? Incredible grace. Calvin said this, Hence, too, we infer that we are one with the Son of God, not because he conveys his substance to us, but because by the power of his Spirit he imparts to us life and all the blessings which he has received from the Father. How incredible is that? But that's not all. Do you understand that because of the gospel, you will see God face to face? Do you understand the seraphim don't even get to do that? Right? When we look at Isaiah 6, starting in verse 2, we see the seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two, he covered his face because he can't look at God face to face. He's a cherubim. He's in heaven. He's, a, he's sinless. But he doesn't look, get to look at God face to face, but you will. We will see him face to face. John 3, 2, I already read it. Um, he, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And this incredible statement in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. In scripture, we see Christ dimly, right? It says that in 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. But in heaven, we're going to see Christ in all his effulgent glory, unveiled. The glory he had before the foundation of the world, and we will see him face to face. Not only that, this, this relationship with the Father is intimate in the fact that he will wipe away every tear. It says in Revelation 21, he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Imagine a mother with a, with a kid who fell and hurt his knee or whatever, lovingly wiping away the tears from their child's eyes whom they love. The father is going to do that for you. Do you see the intimacy of the relationship here? You can have that, or you can choose the pleasures of this world and face the unrelenting wrath of God for eternity. For those who know Jesus will have a relationship with him. So here's my exhortation to you. For those who don't know Jesus as their Savior today, Jesus said in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And when you call upon him, what does that mean? It means that you will put your faith in him, you will believe him, you will trust him, you will repent of your sins, and you will turn and follow Jesus. You will give up all that we have in exchange for Christ. It's that parable again in Matthew 13. For the joy over it, he sells all that he has to buy the field, which is the kingdom, which is Christ. You can choose that or you can choose eternal wrath of God. I urge you uh, not to do that. And for those who know the Lord, let me read you a quote from a guy named Joe Thorne. Preaching the gospel to ourselves is a calling 
ourselves to return to Jesus for forgiveness, cleansing, empowerment, and purpose. It is answering doubts and fears with the promises of God. Do my sins condemn me? Has Jesus covered all of them with his blood? Do my works fall short? Jesus' righteousness is counted as mine. Are the world, the devil, and his own flesh conspiring against me? Not even a hair of my head can fall apart from the will of my Father who is in heaven, and he has promised to care for me and keep me forever. I really cannot deny myself, carry my cross, and follow Jesus. Can I really do that? Yes. For God is at work in me, willing and working for his own purpose. This is what it looks like to preach the gospel to ourselves. Let me read you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Have you realized that the most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Hmm. Take those thoughts that come to you by moment you wake up in the morning. You have not uh, originated them, but they are starting, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking, but self is talking to you. Now, this is man's treatment, Psalm 42. What do you do about that? Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Thou art cast down, O my soul, he asks. My soul has been dep uh, depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. When we speak the gospel, we remind ourselves of all these truths. We remind ourselves of your destiny. You know, there's a lot of people in our congregation right now suffering. There are people with all kinds of illness, right? But the simple fact is nothing will take away your eternal destiny. This, and, and one more thing, and I can't leave this, and I, I'll, I'll end with this. The magnificence of the gospel should cause believers to love and adore, and desire, and be satisfied in their Savior more and more every day. Do you know the single most important characteristic of a Christian? The single most important thing about a Christian is that they love Jesus Christ. And if you don't think that's true, listen to the words of Jesus himself. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. When you hear the glory of the gospel, how can you not respond in love and adoration for the son who bore the infinite wrath of God on your behalf? The son who left the glories of heaven that we can't even imagine. We won't even understand that till we get there and look at it and see it. He left all that so that he could come down and die on a cross for you. So that you might have an everlasting relationship, an intimate relationship with him in heaven forever.
Paul says this, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your service of worship. Remind yourself of your destiny. Worship the one who gave all that to you and who chose you before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we are thankful for all that you have done for us. Lord, we want a better word. But you know our hearts. We bow down before you in adoration, Jesus. We bow down before you in thanksgiving, knowing that you have given all that so that we might have all the blessings we see in our life now and an eternity in your very presence. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. So let's continue that worship of Jesus through